And I invite you to turn back with me uh, to that portion in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24, 25, where we'll look at the text proper this afternoon, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and we'll read those words once again. The writer is impressing on his readers that part of what it means to be redeemed by Christ, the implication of Christ atoning sacrificial work for sins, is that it provides for us a new purpose for fellowship, a new purpose for fellowship. And so we read in verses 24 and 25 these words. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we close this morning with the observation that as God designed it, the spiritual health and development of believers in Christ comes by means of mutual ministry. It comes by way of Christians spiritually attending to one another within the context of the local church. And as such, the author of Hebrews summons his readers to their obligation to one another in this regard. Verse 24, he says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That word consider is a very interesting word because the idea behind the Greek they conveys the idea of taking note of, of observing, of paying attention to, of thinking about carefully. And as used here in verse 24, it has overtones of concern. Concern as it relates to what one writer describes as, quote, possible failures or weaknesses in the community that is within the fellowship of the local church. And this concern, this consideration of members of the assembly who are spiritually vulnerable is, among other things, what's involved in bearing one another's burden. We find that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In this concern, this consideration for members of members of the assembly who are spiritually vulnerable, what's involved is caring for one another according to 1 Corinthians 1.25. It concerns serving the saints as an expression of love for the name of Christ, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. We're to consider, that is, give attention to stirring up one another, the Word of God says, and suggested here is the idea of intentionality. Notice that word, consider. We are to think of it. We are, in other words, we are to be thinking of ways in which we can stir one another to love and good works. Behind the exhortation is the suggestion that it's not our natural default disposition to look out for one another. And so the very fact that he says we are to consider how to do it, we are to take thought how to do it, we are to, as it were, look in the assembly to ensure that there's none who is left in a spiritually vulnerable condition. It suggests that we are to go out of the way to do that. It does not come naturally. 
In fact, in very crass terms, sometimes in the church, you'll hear people having seen certain problems in the church, problems in the lives of different individuals. Somebody might say, well, it's none of my business. It's not really my concern. And the truth is, when we look at the word of God, it does matter. It is our business how our brothers and sisters in Christ are faring in their walk with the Lord. The point is, in the natural scheme of things, when I can be selfish, we can be self-centered, locked into our own world, taken up with our own concerns. And so our being thrown together with other believers in Christ challenges us it challenges us to go outside of ourselves to look out for others and their needs. In this regard, we see that our meeting together as a church is not just to be fed the word of God, but to fire up one another, as it were, for the Lord. This is vital to true, healthy Christian living. We're called to stir up one another to love and love, you see, is a central cardinal expression of Christian living. It's very significant that the writer should single out that particular virtue. He says we are to stir one another to love. And interesting, the word stir, the King James Version has it, provoke, because that's really the idea behind the word. We are, we are the writer is saying, to provoke one another to love and good words. Or to provoke one another is not a good thing. In fact, Galatians chapter 5 verse 26 says we are not to be provoking one another, but the word is used here, not in a bad sense. And the idea behind the word there is that we are to stir up, we are to fire up, as it were, those who are in need of spiritual prodding. We are called to stir up one another to love, love being the cardinal Christian Virtue, the expression of true Christian loving, uh, of true Christian living, love, according to the word of God, is the badge of Christian discipleship. As our Lord Jesus stated in John chapter 13, verse 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he says in verse 35, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Which means that where, where love is lacking or waning, there's evidence of spiritual decay and declension. Paul would therefore pray for the Ephesian Christians that being rooted and grounded in love, Ephesians chapter 3 verses 17 and 18, they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. And note the expression there in Paul's prayer, that you might be able to comprehend with all the saints, that phrase or that expression clearly suggests that growth in the love of Christ, growth and maturity in the love of Christ, growth in godliness occur in the context of Christian community. In other words, we will never grow in love outside the fellowship of believers, namely the church, the local church. Again, note the emphasis on the need for Christian fellowship as a means of growth. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, They are speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up 
in love. We see there once again the corporate dimension of our Christian life. We're also called to stir up one another to good works. And that's important because good works are the end to which God saved us according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In fact, the word of God places this high premium on the Christians doing good works when it declares in Titus chapter 3 verse 8, where the word of God insists that those who have believed in God should be careful to devote themselves to good works. So Paul singles out these two cardinal Christian virtues, namely love and good works. And Paul is saying here, I say Paul, the writer of the Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. So the writer is saying here that we are to see to it, part of our duties as members of the church of Christ is to be considering, is to be taking thought, is to be looking in the fellowship for potential weaknesses, failures in the lives of Christians. We are to have a watchful, caring regard one for another, and we are to stir one another. We are to provoke, quote-unquote, in a very good sense, one another unto love and good works. So in summoning his readers, which include you and me, to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, the right of the Hebrews is in effect urging us to make it a point of duty, saying, make it a point of duty, see to it, that you look out for one another so as to ensure that each and every believer in your midst is leading a consistent life worthy of God. The question arises, how are we to do that? How are we to do so? How do we as a church consider how to stir one another to love and good works? And the answer is given us in verse 25, the A part. In fact, verse 25a explains in both negative and positive terms. Negatively speaking, we stir up one another to love and good works by not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Positively speaking, we stir up one another to love and good works by encouraging one another. By encouraging one another. In fact, this is one of the many one another statements we'll find throughout the New Testament as Christians. We are, the Word of God says, to be encouraging one another, and we're not left in the dark as to how we are to do that. How do we encourage one another as Christians in the body of Christ? Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Hold to that for a moment. Listen to what he says in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. And then Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So here it comes. As Christians, we encourage one another to the extent that we ourselves are growing in godliness and in knowledge of God's word. That's what Paul suggests there in Romans chapter 15 verse 14. 
that he says, I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. We ourselves, we must be giving attention to our own spiritual growth, our own spiritual maturity, so that we might be in a position to encourage others. We are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We are to talk to one another, he says, in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. We are to address one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. That's how we encourage one another. That's why we sing. We sing to the Lord. And as we are singing to the Lord those great hymns of the church, we are actually singing to one another too. And in our singing to one another, what we are actually doing, we are rehearsing the praises of God. We're rehearsing the attributes of God, the glorious attributes of God. We are singing the praises of God, yes, to God. And we are in the process of singing, actually teaching and encouraging one another. And by the way, let me just say here, that's why our lyrics are very important. You see, many times people are paying attention to the Maybe the sound of the hymn, the, the tune of the hymn. And I say, boy, it's boring. But here's the point. We are concerned largely with the lyrics. Yes, we are to sing with meaning. We are to sing with understanding, knowing that we are singing to God. But we want to ensure that what we are singing is grounded in the word of God. Because that's how we are encouraged. That's how we are strengthened. Encourage one another through our corporate worship of God, even as we sing to one another of the praises of God. Of course, this is best done within the context of believers assembling themselves together. Now, such stirring up of one another to love and good work, such meeting together and encouraging one another is to be done, says the last clause of verse 25. Notice Hebrews 10, verse 25. He says it is to be done all the more as you see the day approaching. It is to be done all the more as you see the day approaching. And the question is, what day? Some other commentators are of the view that the author of Hebrews was alluding to the day of Jerusalem's destruction, which occurred roughly one to two years after the epistle was written. Now, because there's no contextual clue in the epistle suggesting this, a more reasonable assumption, I believe, is that he was referring particularly to the day of Christ's coming. And such a question is, why is it important that we assemble ourselves together, particularly as the day of Christ approaches? And to get that answer, we think of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, that Olivet Discourse. You see, with the approaching day of Christ, as the day of Christ approaches, with the approaching of Christ comes the prevalence of spiritual deception. In Matthew 24, 3 to 5, Jesus, his disciples had inquired of him concerning the destruction of the temple. Jesus had spoken clearly that the temple would be destroyed. 
And in response to that statement, the disciples came to Jesus saying in verses 3 to 5, he says, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and at the, of the end of the age? To which Jesus replied, verses 4 and 5, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. You see, with the coming of Christ comes the prevalence of spiritual deception. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that part of the reason that God has established personnel in the church in the form of teachers, pastors, evangelists is for the perfecting of the saints so that together they might be built up. That, and then he says toward the end that we be no more children tossed to and fro with every wind of deceitful doctrines and schemes of men. That's why we need one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to warn one another concerning false deceptive teaching. And then with the approaching day of Christ comes also spiritual defection, verse 10. Because Jesus says there, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. This is a time of falling away and every few months it seems we hear of some great fall in the Christian church. Leaders falling, leaders failing. We hear cases of apostasy and here's a sobering truth. It becomes commonplace, yes, easily becomes commonplace. We hear time and again, there go I except for the grace of God. Spiritual defection marks the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, precedes the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which makes it so urgent for us to be watching out for one another, warning one another, encouraging one another, steering one another away from the pitfalls that lead many to abandon the faith. And then thirdly, with the approaching day of Christ comes spiritual deadness. Spiritual deadness. Here's what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 12. He says this, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. The point is, as we draw close to the end of the age with its increasing apostasy, deception, as people draw and are drawn away more and more from God, we need one another. need to help one another to stay on track and not be derailed. Helping one another by being in the company of one another. Encouraging, admonishing, counseling and instructing one another in the matter of faithful Christian living. Now there's a very interesting account in the book of Malachi. Malachi, you know, the prophet Malachi... He ministered in a day in which the nation, the nation Israel, had sunk into a low spiritual and moral condition. The priesthood, we are told, had become corrupt. Worship had become perfunctory. There was nothing of the heart in it. Divorce was rampant. Such was a time when the nation was by and large walking away from God. Yet amidst this dark backdrop of apostasy, we read these words concerning a faithful remnant in Israel. Malachi chapter 3 verse 16, here's what the prophet Malachi says concerning this faithful remnant. He says this, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. 
He says, and the Lord heard it, and the Lord took note of those that spoke of his name, that thought upon his name. The Lord took note of them and what they said. Now, it's very unlikely that in speaking with one another, the subject of their communication was largely small talk. Yes, they must have had times of light, relaxed discussion, but as suggested in that passage, Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, they spent a great deal of time conversing on matters related to loving and serving the Lord. No doubt they spoke with one another about the things of the Lord with a view to encouraging one another to press on for the Lord. Those were dark days, morally and spiritually. The priesthood, as we said, had become corrupt. Leadership was at an all-time low. And here was a group of Christians who spent time talking to one another. They were talking not necessarily about the happenings of the day. They were not talking about sports. They were talking evidently about the Lord. Listen, small groups, home Bible studies, other informal forums provide means whereby Christians can get together in a relaxed fashion. But here's the deal. If at the end of the day the substance of these meetings is not the things of the Lord, then the name and purpose of those groups must and should be changed. But certainly we can say that these believers in Malachi's day, they were given to speaking with one another about the things of the Lord. Why? Because the B part of verse 16 says the Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. That's what they were talking about. They were talking about the Lord. They were talking about his name, his reputation, his glory. Sports, politics, one's job, all make for interesting talk, but none of these things, good as they are, in their own right, will motivate us, will challenge us in our walk with the Lord, as will sharing with one another the things of the Lord. This should particularly be the case when we gather together as the people of God. I guarantee you this, and uh, you, you will readily see this, in an age where there was no telephone, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, no Instagram, you wonder how they kept up this matter of, of talking to one another, speaking with one another. They must have been meeting together. Those stated times, they would get together and they would just talk about the Lord. They would encourage one another. What would have been involved in their speaking with one another in addition to communicating on a one-on-one -on -one basis? There's no doubt they would have met together both formally and informally at the temple in their various, and in their various life settings. It meant that they took time and even went out of their way to foster this kind of fellowship. As one writer comments, they took trouble to find one another. They were hungry for the fellowship of other God-fearers. We who fear the Lord and have true faith in Christ will do the same. We will seek out those who love God and will communicate with them our hopes, fears, triumphs, and failures. 
These saints in Malachi, they spoke to one another. They sought out one another. Why? Because the spiritual darkness, the spiritual declension of the times gave them a sense of need for one another. They communicated with one another. Why? Because distressing times made them feel the need for one another. What this tells us is that serving God is not an individualistic, isolated affair. It's not a lone ranger type situation. The biblical Christianity knows nothing of a lone ranger type profession of faith in Christ. The fact is there's no believer in Christ, as we intimated this morning, who can remain spiritually well in deliberate prolonged isolation from the support and fellowship of other believers in Christ. We think today of the increasing tensions in our world, the chaos of our world, the discouragement of our world. And my friends, here's the point. There's no other source of encouragement that is going to be as substantial as the encouragement that comes from the people of God through the use of the word of God. Our well-being is compromised the moment we regard ourselves as being able to go it alone in our walk with the Lord. What are the benefits then? And with these we close. What are the benefits of assembling with other believers in the context of a local church? And note as we've been stressing in the context of a local church. Why am I stressing in the context of a local church? Because you have groups today who say, well, the church is not the thing. The church is in my heart. And you'll hear people say, well, I can meet with my family. I can worship at home. But here's the point. In the context of the local church, and then we'd have to get into a whole talk this afternoon, which we don't have time to get into. What is a local church? And let me just say quickly, a local church must have constituted qualified leadership, must observe the ordinances, must exercise discipline. And we could go on and on with other features of what constitutes a local church. And we need not search for too long in Scripture to see the vast benefits of regularly meeting with other Christians in the context of the local church. What are the benefits then? Number one, here it comes, regular systematic instruction in the Word of God. Regular systematic instruction in the Word of God. In Acts 2.42, we're told that having come to faith in Christ... The early believers, note what's said of them, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were qualified men, men who were called by God, men who were appointed by Jesus Christ for the express purpose of founding churches, of nurturing the, the saints. We today do not have apostles, but God has placed in the church gifted, qualified personnel in the form of pastor, teachers, elders. Truly benefit from regular church attendance. One needs to be in a church where the Bible is taught systematically, but not just taught systematically, taught by qualified elders, godly eldership, men who are godly in terms of example, men who have the ability to open the word of God, to expound the word of God. 
And that's why Christ has given to the church such personnel as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 13. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for work, the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When one stays away from regularly attending the church, the body of believers one is deprived of regular, systematic teaching of the Word of God. Somebody says, well, I can go to YouTube and I can listen to great preachers. That might be the case. But notice that's not all there is to the local church. It's not just the instruction from qualified teachers of the word of God, but secondly, in meeting with other believers in the context of the local church, we get to participate in the spiritual disciplines, the Lord's Supper and prayer. The Lord's Supper and prayer. What's the practical value of the Lord's Supper? Someone will ask, what is this big deal about every, once per month taking a piece of bread or, or some other element and a cup of juice? What is the big deal about that? Why is it important? Is it really important? What does it do for my spiritual life? And let me suggest to you, that as an aid to our faith, the Lord's Supper challenges us to lead holy lives. You say, how so? Because every time we come to the Lord's table, every time we take the cup, every time we take the element that represents Christ's body, we are obliged to examine our hearts, to examine our lives for unconfessed sins. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 32. We are to ensure that we are not harboring sin, which would bring us divine chastisement. We are actually forced to live right, to live holy. That's what the Lord's Supper does for us. And what's the practical value of prayer as we gather with other believers? Among other things, our own prayer lives are stimulated and strengthened. We, we are not adept at prayer. Listening to others pray helps us in learning how to pray. These things are very important. Corporate prayer has a way of reminding us of our responsibility regarding our own prayer lives. We're able to hear Others pray and we enter into their prayers. Those prayers, as it were, become our prayers and we share in the blessings and the joy of seeing God bring answers to our prayers. That's a benefit, great benefit to our spiritual lives. And then thirdly, meeting with other believers in the context of the local church, we form a powerful and effective witness to the community. We form a powerful and effective witness to the community. Notice in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, Acts 2, 43 states that in response to the church gathering for teaching, for fellowship, for the breaking of bread and prayers, the word of God says, and all came upon every soul. That was what obtained in the early days of the church as those Christians united. And why would all come upon the church? Why would all come upon the community? Well, here were Christians from all walks of life coming together 
in unity, in love. In fact, one Roman historian wrote concerning the early Christians, he has this line where he says, Behold how they love one another. And that was truly impressive to see Christians from all walks of life, from different cultures, come together, are centered around the things of God in worship. That brought awe to onlookers. In addition to these benefits of regularly assembling with with other believers, there's the benefit of being under pastoral oversight. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 3 and the discipline of the church. There's a benefit of not only coming under pastoral oversight, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, but coming under the discipline of the church. Matthew 18, 15 verses, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 through 10. And when we talk about the discipline, coming under discipline of the church, you say, What are we talking about? I'm not, I'm not a child. <laughs> But what are we talking about? You see, being a part of a local church and attending regularly places us, it places us in a position where we are held accountable for the way we live. When a person says, I want to become a member of this church or any local church, what that person is actually saying, among other things, I want to bring my life under pastoral authority. I want to come under the authority, the nurture, the guidance of elders, and also I want to come under the discipline of the church. Discipline is not just negative, it's not just punitive. Discipline is also instructive and preventive. In the context of the assembly, we have people who can lovingly admonish us, counsel us where they see us going astray. And that, you see, is part of God's provision for addressing our proclivity to sin, the tendency to drift because of the waywardness of our hearts, even though saved. That's why we often say this. I often say this. That particularly when our young people go off to college, among the first thing we want to do as parents is to see to it that they are settled in a good local church. What's the reason for that? Because as they attend each week, they are placing themselves, as it were, under pastoral oversight. We're not talking about policing. We're talking about coming under godly leadership where they'll be exposed to the word of God, they'll be taught the word of God. If they're going astray, they have godly elders, godly leaders who can call them lovingly and put them back on the right track. And so we see how important as we close this matter is this matter of faithfully Assembling ourselves with our fellow believers. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said this, quote, Never neglect the means of grace. He's talking here specifically about the provision of grace in the local church. He says, never neglect the means of grace. God may bless us when we are not in his house, but we have the greater reason to hope that he will when we are in communion with the saints, end quote. 
So we were given to habitually gathering with our fellow believers in, in a Bible practicing church. This does, it does have a way of spiritually impacting our lives in spiritual, wholesome, beneficial ways. Among other things, our sensitivity will become sharpened. We grow in grace, the grace of patience, love, and self-giving, obliged as we are to love those with whom we are thrown in the local assembly. We learn to share one another's burdens. We learn to live with one another in love. Now some people will, you'll find it from time to time where persons will leave a church because of interpersonal problems. And they say, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with this church because they have hurt me. And let me say that this is not, this is not a good reason for leaving a church. It's not a good reason because you will go elsewhere and be hurt as well. Part of the reason we are thrown together as Christians in the local assembly is that we might cultivate the graces of patience, kindness, love, tolerance, forbearance. And we never cultivate those graces in isolation, in isolated fashion, we can only cultivate those graces in Christian community. And here's the point. If we, are, if we are in a place long enough, given time, at some point, somebody is going to rub us the wrong way. And that's not the worst thing that could ever happen. The worst thing that could ever happen is not when we have disagreements. It's not when we have conflicts. The worst thing that can happen is when those conflicts issue in fights. We never want that. We want to ask God to give us the grace of forbearance, the grace of love one for another, the grace of learning to live and worship and serve one with another. May God grant that these things would be so in our lives, in our church, for his name's sake. Amen.